0: And that is important and I think I made this point last time as well when you said education is the most important thing that you need to look at and I uh, corrected you and said no education is one thing that you need to look at, health is another thing, infrastructure is another thing, defense is another thing, after all uh, India built one of the greatest universities in the world in Nalanda right, but if you don't invest in defense what happens you discovered it gets sacked and all Mm. the library got burnt. Absolutely right about the 1970s, 80s, even the early 90s. We had an economy that was heavily dominated, ironically, by the government. So in a system where there is a dominance of government, of a small group of people, uh, where bureaucrats or politicians manage, gives, give out everybody licenses and so on. In the 70s, tax rates went above 90%. So if you effectively criminalized everybody. Damn. Yes. You banned importing of all kinds of goods. So therefore smuggling was everywhere. Right. You gave out licenses. You said if you want to manufacture a car, here is a license. I, and politicians would give out their licenses to their friends and family naturally. So naturally what happened as a result is that you criminalized economic activity. The first episode was a blockbuster. It was one of our
1: biggest episodes in terms of views. Throughout the year, it was one of the most insightful episodes on the 101 of economics, how you run a country, what are the finances involved, what are the strategies involved. Today is a bit more of a deep dive. You don't necessarily have to watch that prequel episode in order to understand today's episode. It's always better if you do because you'll understand some basics with more clarity. But clarity is a the theme of this one. We deep dived into economics once again. This is only our second episode with Sanjeev Sanyal sir. I'm sure he's going to be back on the podcast because he is a dream guest. This is another epic episode with him. Let's get this to another 2 million views or so. Here we go baby. Sanjeev so Sanyal, welcome back to TRS. It's a pleasure to be back, Ranveer. How are you, sir? I'm well. Thank you for giving me one of my biggest hits of the year. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pleasure. <laughs> Why do you think people liked you so much and liked that topic so much?
0: Well, that's a <laughs> tough one to tell. I have no idea. Uh, well, I suppose you, 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 you allowed me to simplify economics in a way that I normally wouldn't do. After all, you know, I am writing more technical papers like the economic survey and so on. So I suppose there is a large number of people who wonder what on earth uh, I'm going on about. So you you helped me simplify things in ways I wouldn't otherwise do. Perhaps that's what it is. I'm just guessing. Okay. Uh, I mean, but there are so many other subjects in this world.
1: For example, so many science related subjects that people don't want to know about in that much detail. But I feel because your subject affects everyone's lives very intimately, especially where India's at, where everyone's starting to get this uh, lifelong education through the internet. That's my uh, thought process. I think that's why it worked. It applies to people's lives a lot.
0: Maybe that's what it is. Who knows? Try a science show as well. With somebody uh-huh. who can explain it simply. But uh, I think, yes, it is a. is. You're right. It is a moment in history. Um, after you know, centuries uh, of uh, India losing its place in the world, so to speak, we are now clearly in a position where we have become now the fifth largest economy in the world. Um, In the next two, three years, we will become the third largest economy in the world. So I think there is a certain feeling of momentum in India and, um, you know, people want to know about it and feel part of it. Okay. So uh,
1: these landmarks of becoming the fifth largest and the third largest. When was this planned?
0: It wasn't planned in that sense. What we are trying to do is a much simpler thing. What we are trying to do is improve the lives of the ordinary people. So it's not like, oh, you know, we want to be the third largest economy in the world. And then we can, you know, uh, beat our chests even louder. Um, Why we want to do this is because we have 1.4 billion people living here. And our economy simply needs to be larger so that we have enough resources in the country to be able to improve people's lives. That's basically it. Because do remember that even when we become the third largest economy in the world in about around about 2027-28, 20, uh, 20, uh, when we'll be a little over $5 trillion economy, we will still be a very poor economy. I mean, once you divide it amongst the large population, the per capita income is still very poor. Just because our economy is bigger than that of um, Germany or Japan doesn't mean that average Indian is richer than an average uh, German or the Japanese. They'll still have much higher quality of living. But the fact is that finally, we are beginning to um, make a dent in this pro- in this problem of poverty. Um, finally, we are beginning to stand up uh, for a large chunk of humanity that, um, you know, live in India, but for a long time, simply didn't count in the way they should. So I think that is what people like about this moment in history. And they want to know about it. Okay.
1: I have so many more questions. Uh, You did cover the basics of economics the last time we spoke. Yes. Uh, Maybe like a tiny recap of like the last time from my years. Okay. Based on what I remember. So basically... It's too big a subject, economics, firstly. That's the one thing I remember from the last time. And kind of some core understandings that I got were that um, it's about how you make a country richer and then how do you divide that money and use that money such that uh, the country grows, but at the same time, life, power, uh, food, all these other factors are also balanced. Am I right till this point?
0: Yes, it's basically about growing your pool of economic resources and then allocating it in a way that improves people's lives okay on a sustainable basis okay
1: um what was happening with the lowest strata of society up till now uh i genuinely want to know is it and i'll tell you i'll tell you where this is coming from because we spoke last i think in feb or january and i've had this whole political phase of podcasts like since then uh Post the political phase, I've had political commentators. I had Tessin Poonala on the show who said something which I wanted to confirm on this episode. He said that because of the size of our population, we would have anyway seen this kind of growth and it's nothing special that the current government did
0: different. Is that true? Well, one very important thing to remember. Growth is not inevitable. Okay. This is what I want. Right? Heard. Growth is earned. And so if we were just sitting around twiddling our thumbs, it's not obvious that the economy would be growing. After all, we, had, we, we are now the world's largest population, but we were the world's second largest population from 1947 onwards, in fact, even before that. So why were we poor? So just having a large population means nothing. What matters is what do you do with it? Now, we unfortunately wasted four and a half decades till 1991 attempting to do a socialist planned economy, which didn't work. Our economy blew up. Then starting 1991, uh, we began to reform the economy and it generated growth. Uh, There's no doubt that our quality of life today is much higher than it was in the early 90s. That doesn't mean that, uh, you know, there aren't lots of poor people. There are still hundreds of millions of very poor people. But no matter how you measure it, it is true that the number of poor people is falling very exponentially. And that the average Indian now lives is better fed; he has better quality of life than has been for a very long time, and it's going to keep going upward. Well, this is what has to be earned. The point I keep making to you is that it is there's nothing natural about this this growth. Everything has to be earned. So we uh, began to earn growth in from the 90s onwards by finally beginning to liberalize our economy allowing our private sector energies to show through, that that energy, so to speak, will keep petering out unless you do another round of uh, reform. So that energy from the 90s and early 2000s fed through till a certain point in time and then petered out. So by about 2012, 2013, 14. our economy was again slowing down, our banks were going bust, we were part of the fragile five, and so on, you will remember that. And so that momentum petered out, and you had to rebuild that uh, momentum. And for that, you had to do the following things, you had to clean up the banks, I was myself involved uh, heavily in, you know, it took me a lot of energy when i first joined the government to clean up the banks then we had to create an insolvency and bankruptcy code so that companies that went bankrupt along the way could be cleaned out of the system and their assets could be sold and we could again take risks because remember if you're based on a private sector entrepreneurship based system some part of uh, the risks business risks that the system takes will go wrong that's 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 what risk taking is right the whole point is some of it will not work out but you have to have a system that continuously cleans out these bad bets so to speak and so the insolvency and bankruptcy code was needed similarly we didn't have a common market so india may be a large country but every state had its own uh, tax rules i don't know if you're old enough to remember this in in till, till they, even cities used to have their own tax uh, tax rules called octroi but <laughs> uh, but till as recently as 2017 Every state used to have its indirect tax system. So eventually, when we created GST, we basically signed a free trade agreement with ourselves. And so finally, we became a common market. Similarly, we did other things. We we used to be a very high inflation country. Okay, not in the Argentinian sense of inflation, but certainly a country where inflation used to be in the 8 to 12% range most of the time. Then, so we introduced something called an inflation targeting framework. You will now know every two months the Monetary Policy Committee comes together and they target interest rates to, uh, they use interest rates to target inflation. And the target is between 2% and 6% inflation. So it's not 0% inflation, it's 2 to 6%, which is considered reasonable for our uh, level of development. And since then, more or less, inflation has remained in that uh, band. It's uh, on a couple of occasions gone above and a couple of occasions come below. But it has served us very well because... Despite the COVID episode, despite um, all the inflationary episodes worldwide, uh, despite countries around us like Sri Lanka, uh, uh, Pakistan, etc., imploding, and many countries around the world—not just these countries, but whether it's Egypt or Turkey—and even huge inflationary spirals in in the U.S., we did not have this. In our case, what happens is vegetable prices, like tomato, will spike up for a few months and then come crashing down again. That kind of inflation is fine because it's not spiraling out of control in in one direction, right? So given that, I think we have done a good job basically maintaining control, macroeconomic stability, creating these frameworks for a common market and so on. And then we have kept opening up new sectors. So even in the middle of COVID, we opened up the drone sector. We opened up the geospatial and cartography sector. We opened up the space sector so we have kept doing reforms. We, have, we privatized Air India all in the middle of COVID. What do you mean opened up a sector? So earlier, we used to have a license permit system. So a sector was kept closed and only the public sector could, could operate in it. Later on, we became a little more liberal. We allowed private sector into it. But then all kinds of rules, regulations used to be there. So over a period of time, we liberalized it, opened it up we opened it up completely now basically anybody wants to set up a company and some of these things you can do whatever you want okay. so this is how we have opened up economy because then startups can come private sector can take risks foreign companies can come and set up things so this is something we have to continuously do okay so the way i look at it um, i
1: look at a country as kind of a greenhouse. And then depending on the rules of economics that are in place in that country, the greenhouse is going to develop in a particular way. And all you can do as economists, as the government, is tweak the rules and then see organically what happens in the country.
0: Yes, in a sense. Okay. Remember, since you said a greenhouse, basically, what you're saying, there's all these energies coming in yes. and it's heating it up. But you have to see, somebody has to manage it so it doesn't overheat. Mm. Mm. Right? It can overheat. You can you know, there you have to manage the plants inside the greenhouse. You don't want arctic plants in a greenhouse which mm. will die in the heat. Mm. Uh, you have to water it um, and so on and so forth. So a greenhouse has to be managed. There's nothing natural about a flourishing greenhouse. Right. Uh, I think the art here is the rule setting. Rule setting is one part of it. And that, by the way, an ancient Indian uh, governance rule that is called Dandaniti, And there were schools of thought. For example, the schools of Shukra Acharya who said that that is all that is needed. You just need to create the rules and this, and enforce the contracts and the economy flourishes. But there were people who disagreed. There was the school of Brihaspati who said, no, you need economic active economic policy. You have to pay attention to what is happening. As in the first one said, you set rules and then let it flourish. The second one And, says, and, and But you have to enforce it. Got you it. You set the rules, enforce the rules or contracts and it flourishes. And the second one says, no, you have to keep tweaking it. You have to keep it. tweaking and do policies. Actually intervene, you have to put in infrastructure, you have to do other things as well. So that is the school of Brihaspati. Brihaspati is not saying that shukra is wrong, rules are needed. He's just saying shukra is incomplete. Mm. You need to have active policy. Then there are others, Kautilya, for example, Chanakya. He writes in the Arthashastra that yes, you need the rules, you need the economic policies, but they have to be done in a certain cultural context and you also need a philosophical anchor to it. So you know the same set of rules in a certain context may work in another context it may not work. So Chanakya puts the three. Three means the first three Vedas, but more broadly means the cultural context.
1: I feel like crying out of happiness <laughs> because of you. You're a great podcast guest. You just give me so many <laughs> tangents to take. Anyway, coming back. So in your eyes, couple of questions. One, draw out the 2023 scenario that India's in. And two, in your eyes, do you look at the Indian people as different slabs like rich, hyper rich, middle class, upper, lower,
0: and then like below the poverty line? Do you look at it like that? Well, it context uh, depends on the context. If we, what you're looking at is income distribution, that's a useful way to think about it. It may not be uh, useful to think uh, about it in this way for some other thing. Like? For example, if I'm trying to uh, work out public transport systems. Right? Sure, the, I want to have a really good public transport system where everybody, rich, poor, everybody uses it. Like in London, rich, poor, everybody uses it. Yeah, the sign of a rich country is where the rich people use public transport. Absolutely. So you you have to be careful. You know, Having these class distinctions is useful for a certain context. But it may not be useful uh, for another context. So unfortunately, what happens is that people have these unidimensional views of things and they think that their particular approach is the only meaningful way. But in fact... The lens you use is related to the context you're, that you're trying, trying to solve for. And that is important. And I think I made this point last time as well, when you said education is the most important thing that you need to look at. And I corrected you and said, no, education is one thing that you need to look at. Health is another thing. Infrastructure is another thing. Defense is another thing. After all, uh, India built one of the greatest u- universities in the world in Nalanda, Right. But if you don't invest in defense, what happens? You've discovered it gets sacked and all mm. the library got burnt. Love that you said that. Because we like to
1: live in this bit of victim mentality play that, oh, look at our great library, it got burnt, but you need to understand what went wrong as well.
0: Absolutely. We have so you cannot have these human de- dimensional views. And that's why I said go- governance in general and economics in particular is about dividing your limited resources so that you maximize the output in different dimensions. That's why it's difficult because. Uh, you're maximizing in multiple dimensions and uh, obviously you have limited information and in sometimes uh, uh, you're making uh, arbitrary choices. But because it's this moving, messy beast, uh, (laughs) that's why it's a hard subject. The reason I brought
1: up income brackets was because we spoke about uh, becoming the third largest economy, etc. I would assume that when you're talking about a country becoming a larger economy, it basically means when you boil it down to a very simple sentence, you're making people richer. That's what I am
0: assuming. Yes, average. So now let me explain two things. One is you wanted a, f- a sense of the economy as it is today. And then I will explain what about what we will do with this uh, growth. Okay. Would sure. you prefer it that way? Uh,
1: I mean, I think we'll move into the 2023... I would like to move into it a little later. Okay, fine. I'd just like to solve this. And I'll tell you why. Audiences watch these podcasts based on, okay, what is in this for me? Okay, fine. So so let's let's talk about like, you know, uh, the income brackets
0: angle. So let's say we become um, in dollar terms. Sure. In the year 28, we become the third largest economy in the world. Yeah. Now, let me point out one thing right in the beginning that in purchasing power terms we are already the world's third largest economy. Because remember, prices are different in different countries. So since prices of most things are cheaper here, if you, if you adjust for it, we are already the world's third largest economy. But in pure hard dollar terms, we will be the world's third largest economy about in the year 2027-28. Yeah? Now what happens is that means that the pool of income or that is generated by the whole economy is now much larger. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody gets the same amount of income. There are richer people who get more and there are poorer people who get less. But still, if you uh, have a larger pot and you you allow for this growth to happen, first of all, by nature of the flow of things, more people have more money, right? The number of poor have got diminished because there's more money sloshing around. Now, that doesn't mean that the poor there will still be some people in a big country that will definitely be true who still need some support, right? Now, what do you do about it? Now, there are different ways to deal with this. One way, which is a common way, particularly in the West, is to think about this in terms of relative income and inequality. That is typically the way uh, they think about it. And so they'll say, well, there are too many billionaires are so many hundred thousand poor you know we should redirect this money to that now first of all that causes two problems no matter how much money this these few billionaires have if you divide it around hundreds of millions of people it'll vanish Mm. secondly you'll mess up the incentive structure of the economy and why would anybody uh, uh, try to generate high growth if this if you do this beyond a point so you can do it only up to a point you can have higher taxes on the rich up to a point and redistribute. So there's one, one way of doing it. However, in addition to this, you can think of it in another way, which is the way we in this government have thought about it, which is called Anto Which means you think about the poorest guy in the system without worrying about uh, inequality as such. This is not about making the rich guy poorer. This is about helping the poorest guy. So this is an absolute poverty way of thinking about things okay so if you look at the way we have dealt with it in here we have gone and targeted the very poorest people in directly so provide them with gas provided them with some health insurance make sure they can build, it, uh, uh, build uh, sort of build a pakka house there's the prime ministers Awas yojana or you have um, the toilet scheme right swachh bharat so what what are we trying to do we are basically saying that, look, everybody needs to be brought to some basic level. So we target absolute poverty and then bring them to a place where they themselves can take risks and participate in this growing economy. Mm. Right. So they don't have to be spoon fed mm. But at the very bottom, you have to help out. Mm. So this is a somewhat different way of thinking of poverty. It's it's about targeting not inequality, but absolute poverty. Okay. Uh before we moved on to that
1: 2023 question I was actually going to ask you how one makes poor people hmm. slightly richer I know I'm boiling down that very complex question in a very simple way uh, but I think you answered it right now that there's multiple ways and one of
0: the ways uh, is, is growth, just grow the pool, you see otherwise what you're doing is you're redistributing poverty okay yeah. we are a country that is as things stand um, about a $4 trillion economy. Now, we are 1.4 billion people. You do your maths, you will not come out to a very large number. So you'll come to $2,400, $500 uh, uh, dollars per capita income. Now You know, uh, it's not going to solve anything. It will still be a very, very poor country. So we just need to take this up to some level like five, $6,000 where you know, the generalized absolute poverty will begin to disappear. Now, there'll still be some few million people who, who really need direct support, but the number will shrink. Correct. But meanwhile, the economy is larger. There are more jobs around. Uh, there, are more, there are more taxes around because this larger economy is presumably paying more taxes. So the government has more resources. Uh, the private sector has more resources. Um, and so uh, the amount of uh, sort of... Uh, the, the 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 systemic uh, sort of um, ability to raise people out of uh, poverty is consequently much greater.
1: I think this question came out from the place of uh, having watched Swades as a kid. Everyone wants to be a Shahrukh Khan from Swades in some way. You know, especially when it comes to India, you want to go and help uh, the underprivileged. Every person watching this uh, podcast as well, and I'm a hundred percent sure that's effectively how you look at yourself in some ways also.
0: Well, one has to be very careful not to be patronizing. Uh, I certainly want to make, uh, make uh, want to make a contribution to uh, uh, helping the country's economy grow bigger and generate jobs and so on. But uh, you know this uh, somewhat patronizing okay. uh, sort of uh, view of Swadesh. You know, I went there <laughs> and helped the poor. I am always suspicious of this somewhat. Uh, NGO ish okay. uh, approach to uh, economic development. Okay. In the end, uh, what you want is an economy that is generating real jobs and not charity. And so I would say, uh, whether it's the you know, whether it's a, a, a small startup that is trying to innovate something and employing a whole bunch of young people to do something new, or a large company, whether it's uh, you know the Tatas or or Reliance or uh, uh, emphasis, uh, you know, creating jobs for hundreds of uh, hundreds of thousands of people, or even uh, you know parts of the government where uh, jobs are being created uh, for all kinds of things from the army to railways to other areas. So what I'm trying to say is that generating economic growth is the real service. Hmm. Okay, fair. Yeah. So managing a and managing to grow our economy to something of a different scale is far more important than this Swadesh approach to (laughs) uh, helping a few people. Makes the person who's doing it feel better, maybe personally, but it's not solving any problem.
1: You know, every time you disagree with me, it's always kind of the same disagreement that don't look at it with a myopic point of view. It's much wider than that. Yes. Okay. Which is also probably why I enjoy speaking to you so much. Uh, One, disagreements lead to better conversations. And two, you have a very wide spectrum of things that you do. Which is why... I'm going to ask you about this 2023 question now. Uh, What's up in the country today? Uh, What are the next five years looking like? Can I ask you about five years?
0: Yeah, you know, as you go further into the future, it becomes, the the view becomes foggier. (laughs) So, uh, is five years a
1: foggy view? I'll give you a foggy view, but that's the best we can do. Okay. Uh, paint out a picture, so I'd love for you to start out at the basics again for the teenagers watching this mm. and then
0: you can go as deep as you wish. Okay. So as things stand, yes, sir. our economy at this juncture is growing at somewhere in the range of 6.5 to 7%. So GDP, that's gross domestic product, that's the size of our economy is growing. This year will grow at about somewhere between 6.5 to 7%. Last year, it grew at 7.2%. This makes us the fastest growing major economy in uh, 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 in the world. Now, the problem is that some people will say we should be growing even faster.
1: Hmm.
0: Now, that is easier said than done. And I'll tell you why at this juncture, it's kind of a difficult thing to do. You see, the world is moving into a recession. Global trade is slowing down. Exports are slowing down. Even our goods exports are slowing down. Our services exports may be growing, but our, good, our own goods exports are slowing China's goods exports are slowing. So in this situation, let's say, we say that, look, let's spend some more government money, let's cut interest rates and force the economy to grow faster at 8%. What will happen? Our exports are dependent on somebody else's buying. So that will grow at whatever rate is it's going to grow anyway. But meanwhile, our imports will suddenly grow because we are growing faster. We are, our demand is growing faster. So we are sucking in more imports. So what will happen? Our, our trade balance... Right? will go in the wrong direction and it will cause instability in the system. Mm. So therefore, when you're driving an economy, it's like being on a cycle. You want to go as fast as possible, but if you go too fast, you become unstable. If you're going too slowly, also you're unstable. So you have to make a judgment that given the state of the road, given how much uh, uh, you know traffic you, is there and so on, you have to make a judgment about what is the optimal speed. So my judgment is that given the global situation where it is, 6.5% to 7% is a good rate. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't aspire to grow faster in the future. And therefore, we should keep doing reforms. We should keep building infrastructure. Uh, If you go across India, you'll see massive highways being built. We don't need them today in those scales. But we are aspiring that in the future, an opportunity will come. Now, I can't predict when that will come, but the world economy goes in cycles. At some point, the road will be clear. The traffic will be better. And that time is a good time when you press the pedal harder and you grow at, say, 8%, maybe even more than 8%. That will be a good time to do it. But meanwhile, remember, the game is about compounding. Don't worry about uh, any particular year's growth. And don't try and inorganically try and uh, push it too hard. Because you will unnecessarily disbalance yourself. Don't fall off the cycle. Very important. That's why that's called macro stability. That's why I said, don't let your current account or your trade balance or your inflation go off out of whack. You know, manage that first. You have to balance yourself. Then after you balance yourself, go as fast as possible given the state of the road you're on. So right now, given the situation, this is where we are at. Now, hopefully, uh, a year or more from now, the rest of the world's inflationary problems will have eased. They'll be cutting interest rates. The US Fed will cut interest rates. Their economy will grow a little bit faster. Europe will begin to revive. Maybe China will begin to revive. So global demand will be higher. My sense is that at that point, we will grow faster. And irrespective of this uh, exact number, one percentage point here or there, The fact of the matter is, we are right now around about $4 trillion economy, just short of $4 trillion. Germany's economy is about $4.3 trillion economy, and it's not growing. And Japan's economy is about $4.9 trillion economy. That's also not really growing. So my sense is that in about 18 months from now, we will go past Germany's economy. And then, as I said, by 27, 28, we'll go past Japan's economy. Now, like we discussed earlier, the pool of funds, therefore, will have grown. This means that we'll also have more tax resources. We can help the poor with it, but meanwhile, the middle class will have more jobs. Rich can also become richer, take more risk, no problem. My view here is that the pool must keep growing and some part of the resources should be continuously pumped down to the very poorest people to keep them, uh, sort of push, push up their level. Along the way. Okay. Uh, if you want to expand any
1: more in terms of... No, you tell me what specifically you would like to, I will do so. Um, you know, a very kind of raw question I've been thinking about is the total number of people who don't pay that taxes in India and how much that affects your life, job, predictions. Well,
0: there is certainly this the, the total number of people not paying taxes in India is an issue. Um, because if everybody who's supposed to pay taxes did pay their taxes, actually we would be able to lower taxes, the tax rates, significantly. Mm. Because ideally, what do you want? You want to have very light taxes. In fact, the 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 way it was described in ancient Indian texts is you want to uh, collect taxes in the way that a bee collects honey, so that the flower is not affected. In fact, it benefits from the pollen being taken and the bee gets its pollen and converts to honey. So in the same way, we should, a government should collect taxes from the people such that people pay the taxes but don't seem to be
1: too affected by it. This is just an assumption I'm making. Uh, I know that the 90s in Mumbai was heavily about the underworld and the 80s, the 70s, the 60s, it was the same. Uh, Since the 2000s, and we've had Shivanandan sir on the show multiple times, he's spoken about how the police force helped clean up the Mumbai underworld. Uh, I'm also assuming that was in parallel with the underworld losing its stronghold over money, over uh, power in many ways. My question to you is, was the underworld's clout, money, power ever... So big that it actually made a dent in the government's work? Or- yeah, yes, of course it okay, did. You're
0: absolutely right about the 1970s, 80s, even the early 90s. And the reason for that is very simple. We had an economy that was heavily dominated, ironically, by the government. So in a system where there is a dominance of government, of a small group of people... Uh, where bureaucrats or politicians manage, give out everybody licenses and so on, and then try to control the system through all kinds of rules, regulations and intrusions will create distortions in the market, which can be exploited to make black money. So for example, in the 70s, tax rates went above 90%. So you effectively criminalized everybody. Damn! Yes. You banned importing of all kinds of goods, so therefore smuggling was everywhere. Right. You gave out licenses. You said if you want to manufacture a car, here is a license. I, and politicians would give out their licenses to their friends and family naturally. So naturally, what happened as a result is you criminalized economic activity. So that's why, you know, one of the ironies of history is that um, socialism has nothing to do with helping society. It is much more about control. And that controlled system essentially allowed for various kinds of uh, corruption and to say that intruding on in government in many cases the government and the criminal world begin to very quickly merge because the gov- the, the government officials instead of having a simple set of rules that they that they then uh, are uh, uh, enforcing they are now a part of that uh, managing inside the system and not too much government involvement and naturally there is then uh, you know, not just arrogance, but actually misuse of uh, power, and so then the the government and criminal world will very quickly begin to merge. So that's why I keep saying that you have to be very careful not to have an a, a, a weak and all pervasive government, which is basically what we had uh, till the nineties. Since then, we have slowly tried to reverse this, and ideally, what you want to have is a limited but strong government. Limited. Yes. A government that does a few things, but does it clearly and does it well. Mm. As opposed to an all-pervasive government that is involved in every aspect of your life, but is weak. And as a government becomes more and more all-pervasive, it will typically tend to become weaker and weaker because it is doing too many things. Spread thin. Yeah. So in your eyes, what should a government focus on? The government should focus on the following things. And by the way, this is not a new thing that we have. There are many other great economic thinkers who have made this point, going back all the way to Kautilya's Arthashastra as well, where basically what is the government there to do? The government is there for defence, it is there for internal security, monetary management, making sure the infrastructure is in good place, enforcement of uh, justice and contracts, uh, and making sure municipal systems work. It is not there to decide how business is supposed to be run. And it's certainly not there to get involved itself in business. So this whole idea of having the public sector running airlines, that was the problem. Okay. And that's why we ultimately sold off Air India back to the people who originally set up uh, Air India, which was the Tata's. Mm. So this is the point, that moment you government begins to get involved more and more into your lives, be very clear, those powers mis- will be misused by the bureaucrats, by the politicians, by the judiciary. Everybody who has excessive power will misuse it against you. And they will build links through to the, uh, to people, uh, you know, with black money and criminals and other things. Because very quickly, it then becomes a one gigantic mafia. Hmm. Right? Kind of like North Korea? Yes, that is where the mafia runs the whole system.
1: Hmm. You know, the way you drew out the 70s and 80s, hmm. it kind of seems like you guys were growing up in a
0: soft North Korea. Yes, it was a soft North Korea. That's precisely what it was. What do you think the emergency was? <laughs> okay. That's basically the idea. So it ultimately, that system blew up because one of the allies or the driving forces of this line of approach to economic management, the USSR, collapsed. And India's own economy then finally floundered and we were forced to do the reforms. It's not like the political class or even the business class wanted these reforms. Yeah, It happened because our economy just couldn't go on. It just broke, broke down. Got it. Uh, Okay, I'm going to give you a very rudimentary
1: version of how I look at what happened when the Mm. uh, economy opened up. Basically, the government said, hey, foreigners, you guys can now invest your money in India. You guys can set up shop in India. We used to have Campa Cola and now another cola company, which I wish to not name, uh, comes into India, sets up shop and starts selling its products here. And I'm just talking about cola, but this happened across
0: the yes, spectrum. Yes, so it so this is this is a very this is one very small part of it. Hmm. Before liberalisation, even an Indian guy who wanted to produce a cola or a car or whatever it is couldn't do it. You had to go to the government, genuflect to the bureaucrat, the politician, etc. Then you would be given a license, and only then could you produce the car or or cola or clothes or whatever it is that you were getting a license for. And as you can imagine, if if somebody is giving you a license to produce something, then you'll get something called a license permit Raj. And not surprisingly, there will be all kinds of quid pro quos, rent seeking, etc. That will happen as a result of it. And because your production is not based on your efficiency, your quality of your design, etc. But your ability to get this license, therefore the dynamics of that economy, which I will say will go into that direction that we discussed in the 70s and 80s. Mm. So... Having an open system, generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, having an open system is usually a better thing. It allowed foreigners to come in. It also allowed Indian companies to grow. Okay.
1: When is it not a good thing? Hmm? You said that it's not always a good thing.
0: No. So there may be certain situations where, for example, uh, you may have uh, uh, um, apps from a certain neighboring country which you don't want to be used here because it's be, it, you think that those social media apps may be used to manipulate our population in a particular way. Mm. So you may ban those apps. So some control has to be there. Got it. Okay. But what? generally speaking, you keep the system
1: open. Okay. Coming back to what you said earlier, you said that whatever reforms were brought about in the early 90s were applicable till about 2013, 2014 when the economy started slowing down a bit again. Because those rules and regulations were very catered to the environment and the times of the 1990s. No, so what I
0: said is, look, we had this completely squeezed system where the government controlled everything and we opened it up, right? So one round of reforms happened and it opened up certain opportunities for investment, doing business, etc. And so it created a rush of growth, Hmm. right? Because you've now opened up the door, but then that space that was created gets used up. So you now need to create... A new bunch of reforms to do new things, so that new bunch a round of growth can happen, and so that is the context in which this. Okay, that liberalize. So if you went back to the uh, to the nineties, liberalization and reforms meant the same thing because you basically opened it up. But by the two thousands you began to finally realize that you needed to create regulatory bodies for these things. So along the way in the 90s and early 2000s, some regulatory bodies were created. Then along that created some more period of growth. Then you reached a stage where your infrastructure needed upgrading. So you began to infrastructure building. Then you needed a common market. So you built a common market. Each one of these reforms creates a period of growth. Hmm. But it'll then, you know, eventually the space opened up by one reform well get filled up right gotcha. and then you have to do something new to create a new gener- new dynamic of growth so the, the act of growth is not uh, uh, as I said um, as some people say will oh, naturally happen there's nothing natural about it you have to work hard at it okay and so we need to do reforms in the future as well we have to fix our judicial system we have to fix our bureaucracy we have to keep doing stuff yeah um, let's talk
1: about what's needed now Uh, with a bit of a recap of what's happened in the last nine years from the perspective of economic reforms. Uh, You know, for again, people who are just learning about econ from this particular podcast, what would you like to highlight about the last
0: nine years? So as I said, when we started out in 1990s, what were we trying to do? We basically had a license permit, government controlled, public sector driven economy till 1991. We opened this up And at that stage, liberalization, i.e. opening up, is synonymous with reform and creates a period of growth. Yeah, that period of growth comes to sort of plays itself out. And then the growth can no longer go on. So for the government of that time, then tries to force growth by getting the banks to lend and do other things. But it's not, there's no extra space. So you essentially, much of this lending goes waste by 2013, 2014, uh, the banks are going bad, seeing many of these loans go bad, uh, and the momentum of growth is gone off. So then you need a new uh, round of growth, but that requires doing new things. So new effort, first of all, stabilize the macro economy, you know, create an in- inflation targeting system, which I mentioned earlier, you create a common market, for the so GST, you create a system of creative destruction, so that old companies that have not succeeded and they they have they can be weeded out through bankruptcy so you have an insolvency in bankruptcy code and so these are the reforms that happen then there are still some sectors that were still controlled so open them up like like drones geospatial sector etc then you still have companies that you had inherited public sector companies and you privatize them like air india or list lic So, Mm. those are the kinds of things that you. So, that has then created a new momentum of growth. And of course, along the way, you had to manage random shocks that hit your economy. So, the two years of COVID, that's not a plan that we had, but you still have to manage it, Mm. right? It turns up that, you know, big shock, you have to shut down and lock down an economy, not fun thing to do. (laughs) Uh, And so, you'd have to go through that. But because we invested in all these reforms, we invested in cleaning up the banks. So therefore, we had the uh, uh, resources in the, the, the momentum in the economy that meant that when we came out of this, we were uh, in a position to uh, maintain uh, growth. And as we were discussing earlier, we have this six and a half to seven percent GDP growth that we are now doing. And uh, given the global situation, that, that's very good. It's the fastest growing uh, major economy in the world and is being done with a reasonably macro. Uh, economy being a reasonably stable situation. Our foreign exchange reserves are over 600 billion. Trade account is in decent shape. Inflation, although we have this vegetable problem right now, but generally there's no no you know long-term momentum in inflation. So that's where
1: we are at. Okay. Before I let you continue this India story and I ask you about the near future, uh, I have to ask you about what's going wrong in the world, especially with Europe, China. Uh, you said they're slowing uh, down. The economies are slowing down. Imports have reduced, etc. What's gone wrong there? It's an outcome of them trying to ride the cycle too fast?
0: Yes. They were trying to... In fact, what they were trying to do is that when they were pedaling too hard, when the the road on which they were was hit by COVID. Mm. You see, and at that time, we had warned... Them. In fact, I personally was in television, newspaper articles. As I said it's a bad idea to be trying to pump up the fiscal side, pump up the monetary side, and sort of put as much juice in there. Stimulus checks, this that, blow up your budgets uh, as if the you know there is no tomorrow. And what happened as a result of that is that you ran up huge bills. Happened in the not just in developing countries. I mean, Sri Lanka and all these countries went bust. But even the US was doing... The, the Britain was doing it. And so suddenly their government's debt went spiraling up. And they had created too much money by lowering interest rates and pumping out... You know, they're literally printing money and handing it out. So guess what happened when you spend all this money and hand out free money? You get inflation. So then when they suddenly said, oh my God, we have inflation. What did they do? They suddenly had to spike up all the interest rates. Mm. Yeah, to try and control inflation. So then now we are in that position where we are squeezing the monetary side and slowing the economy down. So that's what happened in most of the world. China has an additional couple of problems. One of them relates to its demographics. It's uh, it's suddenly aging very, very fast, a result of its one-child policy. Uh, And as a result, you have a shrinking population, a shrinking workforce. And so that is an additional problem they have. Also, of course, the geopolitics of it is such that many companies are trying to move their location, international companies trying to move out, and so on. So there are a whole bunch of special things related to China as well. Okay. Now coming back to India. Uh, You were
1: mentioning something about the bureaucracy and the judicial systems. Yes. You want to expand on those thoughts?
0: Yes. Um, So I described what we did over the last 30 years. Liberalized it, then created these frameworks... For allowing this economy to grow we need to do a new round of uh, reforms over the next 20 odd years now some of them we are already beginning to do so those things are called process reforms process reforms are basically going sector by sector and finding out the things that you need to smoothen out there so you've got a patent system that's not big enough improve our patenting system improve the process Uh, we have you know all these onerous criminalized rules for weights, measures, uh, labeling, you know, ask anybody who, who tries to manufacture, say, for example, uh, f- food uh, related products, they have to labels. There are all kinds of convoluted rules for this and very often criminalized. So we need to simplify them and, and, and decriminalize them. So these are all process reforms. So that is all something we're already under Underway, like You have to go into the details of different industries, figure out what the specific
1: problems are yeah. with subject exports.
0: Yes. And okay. then solve those, you know, it's somewhere one nut has to be tightened, somewhere it has to be loosened. You'll basically be improving the efficiency of those businesses and therefore collectively the economy of the country will boom. Yes. So these okay. are called process reforms. Okay, And cool. so we need to do a whole bunch of them because they're there everywhere. Gotcha. And uh, they are not uh, cool... Uh, structural reforms like the earlier reforms where you do one big thing and it's in the headlines mm. very often them they're mostly boring things mm. but somebody has to go and do them so that is that is one lot of things that needs to be done then there the, we need to do something about our judicial system, we have 50 million cases stuck in our judiciary tarik pe tarik absolutely, this tarik pe tarik thing has to, has to be solved for and there's a long discussion on this, I'm not the first person or only person who's talking about it But we need to have a judiciary that is able to deal with this. Now, what needs to be done is not only for the government to do that. The judiciary has to really take this seriously. But they have to solve this. Because without enforcement of contract or delivery of justice on time, um, you know, we can't really make progress. So this is becoming a major constraint. I would say the single biggest constraint to our economic growth. Single biggest constraint to economic growth. Absolutely. Because... A market-based economy is based on contracts. If, you, if your entire economy is based on private sector, it's basically because everybody has contracts with everybody else, right? You have a contract with you to buy something, a contract with you to sell something. Now, somebody has to enforce those contracts. How will the whole system function? Can Who enforces the contract? The judiciary does. But if the judiciary has, you know, your case is going to be come up for hearing in three years' time, then what, how can I run my business? Can we learn from another country who's fixed that judiciary? Absolutely. There are several of them. This is not a new problem. Uh, You know, uh, the country that I like to mention is a very small country called Singapore. But it too had a serious judicial problem. And then at some point in time, they cleaned it up and they got it to function. It's now one of the best judiciaries in the world. How do you possibly clean it up? Well, first of all, you've got to modernize the um, uh, processes. We have archaic medieval processes which need to be smoothened out. We need to have, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, this system of appeal. For example, you get a judgment in your favor, but you can go and appeal to it forever till you re- everything ends up in the Supreme Court. We've got mm. to stop that. Mm. The government itself needs to be uh, stop appealing uh, rulings uh, every time something comes against it, uh, including when the ruling is done by its own tribunals. For example, in income tax. So you need we need to have a system where. There is a system of enforcement of rules, regulations and laws and contracts that uh, functions and today this is now the single biggest constraint to the functioning of our economy. So effectively, when you boil it down to the root of this problem,
1: it's some people who are in charge of the judiciary who can actually change this, right?
0: Well, the government also has to be a part of it because they will have to provide more, in, you know, uh, invest in money, provide the resources. Because of a lot of this, for example, you can apply artificial intelligence uh, to simplify the process. Uh, you can make the processes much simpler. Government has a role in all of this. Okay. It's not just the judiciary itself. So it has to be done in partnership and it has to be done taken seriously. Right. Okay. Have you read
1: 21 Lessons for the 21st Century by Yuval Noah Harari? Uh I think I've read it some time ago, but I don't I don't
0: remember it clearly right now. It's about the distant future and how
1: things will either be completely dystopian or utopian. I don't agree with either point of view. I think it'll be somewhere in the middle eventually. But the question I want to ask you is all these future technologies, be it uh VR and AR, with you know, this is the start of the metaverse, or AI, uh which is already kind of disrupting every industry, automation, all these other futuristic technologies. Do you incorporate it into your plans for the future and how there's going to be a loss of jobs and then people say that there'll be creation of new jobs, but where will that creation be? Do you think about all these
0: hyper futuristic science Absolutely. Fiction? So we 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 have to because we have once these things begin emerging, we have to begin to think about how we can uh, position ourselves as an economy and as a country for them. Sometimes you you say that okay, benign neglect is also uh, possible. But if even if not doing anything is a decision, right? So, but at other times you have to maybe create either encourage a, a sector to emerge. So let's say there is a sector we want to encourage, we could we could provide some resources, or if if it for some reason there are regulations that are stopping it from growing, you can remove those regulations. But at other times we may need regulations. For example, there's a global discussion on what to do about regulating AI. There's no simple answer to this. But the fact is, you have to balance here between, on one side, uh, the fact that this is a great new sector with all awesome new uses, and the other side, which some many people, including Elon Musk, are talking about, um, that uh, this uh, AI could sort of spiral off and begin doing uh, un, uh, things that are unintended, and with huge, uh, huge cost that humanity will pay for it because you know they've lost control of this thing. So. You know, both of them are there. Now, I, there is no preconceived uh, path through which history unfolds itself. And this is where I dis- disagree with people like Harari, who tend to have uh, almost deterministic views of history. There's, you know, okay, this is where it'll go. Either it'll go this way or that way. Mm-hmm. Actually, history could turn up that way and we're off to a completely different direction. Uh, or many other unintended things could happen. And I know this is a point I keep making. Uh, all the time and it's a very much a important part of my own thinking about the world not just about the economy but about the way I think of cities or how I think about the history history as well Uh, it derives from the fact that the world is a complex adaptive system that is spiraling off continuously in different directions and dealing with this unpredictable uh, complex system is the game so I always have difficulty with people like Harari who have much more simplistic, unidimensional uh, views of history. Okay.
1: Um, can I at least ask you about the details of the AI conversations that have been had in the rooms that you work in?
0: Well, I mean, some of it I can't. Sure. But uh, let me say the, the, the fact is that worldwide, they haven't come up with a sensible way of dealing with it. Do you talk to other equivalence of Sanjeev Sanyal from other countries. Yeah, about. yeah, not just it. You know, I'm part, I was part of all the G20 discussions in science as well, where AI was a part of the discussions. Some of it is, of course, offline. But let me say that as a general principle, that it's a tricky thing. You see, the Europeans, for example, have uh, the only people have come out with relatively uh, clear rules about what to do. So far, the Americans have basically let large companies do their own thing. Um, the Europeans are beginning to sort of introduce rules, but let me show you how tricky these rules can be. sure they are one of the sort of tenets on which they have based this is by putting perceptions of risk of a particular technology, and therefore regulations are tuned to the perception of risk of that technology. Fair enough, it you know obviously military technology, which is connected through to the nuclear button is an obvious one. Uh, But other than that, you'll be very surprised how difficult it is to judge whether something is or is not dangerous. uh, Because something that, in fact, much of the world is about uh, unintended consequences and butterfly effects. So, therefore, having these nice neat buckets which the Europeans think in which they will put technologies and try and regulate them very quickly will become so messy that it will become a bureaucratic nightmare. So, now if that is the case then what what other ways can you do what other ways can you think about of trying to deal with this so another approach could be that you say okay since we do not know where this is going we create mandatory manual overrides in various places mandatory transparency requirements so we're not stopping you from doing anything but everybody needs to know what is happening and should be manually there should be human manual override everywhere and human oversight everywhere so everything happens and then in a few really obviously dangerous things you have, you know, clear Chinese walls or whatever, some, some, some way that, that the AI is not allowed to intrude into those spaces. Mm. So that's another way of dealing with this. But, um, you know, there are, uh, you know, th- this is a huge area of d- discussion and, and, and I don't think there's an easy uh, solution to this. Okay. If things go really right, then
1: roti kapda makaan can get solved for every human being.
0: No, I think that you have to be very careful with having these, as I said, utopian, uh, you mm. know, unidimensional, unidirectional views of things. Okay. Uh, I do not think there is a predetermined path that any technology uh, creates. A lot of it is about what we as society, as individuals, as countries do with it. And then it'll go down particular paths. And let me give an example from the past. Sure. When you had social media emerging, uh, very late 90s, early 2000s, what was the idea? What did people think will happen as a result of social media? And I'll tell you what the debates of that time were. The debates of that time were, this is great. Everybody in the world can talk to everybody else. Therefore, you know, ideology and all these kinds of divisions are a thing of the past because everybody will now be able to talk to everybody else. And therefore, you know, knowledge is free and so on and so forth. And we'll all converge into the (laughs) middle. In fact, what happens is quite the other way. You end up with all these echo chambers, which Mm. are now social media actually uh, pumps up. Mm, So I'm just pointing it to you, pointing out to you that even those who invent these technologies do not know where these technologies will take you. The
1: only way to predict the future then is to study the past in detail and try finding a parallel pattern. No,
0: actually it's even worse, more difficult (laughs) than that. The main thing you find by doing all the study of the past is that the future is genuinely unpredictable. Okay. So yes, there are certain echoes you get, but one of the big echoes you get is that don't worry about what the experts are telling you. This is going to go off in a... In, 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 in play itself out in ways you did not imagine. So therefore, flexibility will always beat grand plans. Okay. Gotcha. One
1: last question in this Econ special for you. Okay. Uh, when we speak about people like Mukesh Ambani, okay, now that man's decision has not only built my career, but the career of everyone in my own industry because of Reliance Geo. And it's not just my careers. It's in my team's careers, etc. Uh, so a single man's motivation and uh, unilateral thinking has affected a nation. Can the remaining billionaires in India today actually change the direction of the economy? Uh,
0: or is that a far-fetched sort Or is that an immature they not They can and they can't. And this goes back to the unpredictability of history. Ex ante, I cannot know which Mukesh Ambani is going to do what. Mm. So if you went back 20 years back, Mukesh Ambani, in fact, was going into the um, petrochemical business. It was his brother that was going into uh, all this telecom and and, uh, uh, all this high-tech stuff, right? And that brother, Anil, uh, took risks uh, and he actually went bankrupt, right? Right. And this brother, who was in a completely different sector, weirded around and built in, in an empire into Geo. Mm. So the point I'm making to you is, history is extremely unpredictable. This Geo, this entire thing you described, you know, if if I if, if you've gone back twenty years and some Ambani is going to build uh, a, a Geo type thing, you would have almost certainly predicted that it would be an ill. Because mm. that was the sector he was going into. So the reason I'm telling you this, and, and this goes back to the point I was making about Harari as well, always be suspicious of any experts who try and give you a clear view of history. History is mostly foggy. History is mostly foggy. Mostly foggy when you look forward. In fact, it's foggy backwards too. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> okay, you're saying history <laughs> as... But history forward is really foggy. Mm. And therefore, the people who really are able to take advantage of it are not the people with the great plans but the people who are able to take advantage of the opportunities as they emerge okay got it that's the big lesson
1: from this episode absolutely Uh, it's that whole Will Smith quote he said that when you're trying to build a big house you don't think about how difficult it will be to build that big house you just place that first brick in front of you really really well and then place the next brick really really well
0: that's more or less it. yes And along the way, you may have great vision of the house. And sometimes you'll discover you ran out of money. So you have to make do with something smaller. (laughs) And then somewhere along the way, you make more money, you grow it. And so in some ways, this is how, uh, you know, great civilizations, great countries, great economies are built. Which goes back to my earlier point that you have to allow free enterprise and uh, the economy to flourish because... If you have this idea of giving, a, even if you had the most enlightened ruler in the world, but you had a license permit system, it would still fail, because that enlightened ruler wouldn't know who to give that license permit out to. Okay. I mean, quite apart from the problems of corruption and other things, even if all those things didn't exist, the so-called enlightened ruler would still not be able to succeed in the long run. Because you wouldn't know who to give those licenses to. to. So therefore, you have to have a system that is open. Where you allow all kinds of ideas, entrepreneurship to happen. Knowing fully well that a good proportion of them are going to fail. Mm. Which is why I said this whole process is called... There's a word for it. It's called creative destruction. In the Indian tradition, that is basically what Shiva does. Shiva is the god of destruction. And also the god of creation as a result. It's the same process.
1: Sanjeev Sanyal sir. Thank you. Uh, Enlightening conversation as usual. Uh, i still feel there's maybe 200 more podcasts in you. So I'm looking forward to the remaining 198. Uh, And what I will finally say is that there's a lot of ambitious people watching this. I used to say that there's a lot of ambitious college kids watching this. But honestly, I've realized people of all ages watch TRS. So sir, to all the ambitious Indians looking at you right now, what's your message about the money future?
0: Well, I don't know necessarily about money, but let me say about success as, I, as the point I was making, whether it's the economy or in personal life, a lot of it is about being able to deal with the future as it happens and not about necessarily life going the way you want it to go. So resilience and flexibility and ability to work hard in, under the circumstances you are will always beat the ability to come up with grand plans. Okay. All right. So just
1: react based on the circumstances thrown at you, but also be physically, mentally, and spiritually fit enough to face them. Absolutely. Gotcha. Sanjeev sir, sir, I hope you had fun on this episode and we'll be talking to you very, very soon. Thank you. Thank you, sir. So that was the episode for today. I'd love to know what you thought of this one. The next time we speak to Sanjeev sir, is going to be a conversation that focuses a little more on history. I know for a fact that he'll be going through the comment section for This podcast, so please drop your messages to him in the comment section. Tell me how you'd like me to improve these kind of conversations because I have access to legends like this. I'm open to asking them anything that you guys wish that I ask them. So just give me your suggestions in the comment section. TRS is a work in progress forever. We're gonna keep improving, we're gonna keep bringing perspectives like this on the show. Make sure you support him on all his social media handles and keep supporting. TRS, because we're going to be back very soon.